Expectations are an important thing. Um, I, I work with our personnel committee, and one of the things that we do on the personnel committee um, is we, we make sure that we have good job descriptions for the employees of the church. Because if you don't have a good job description, it's tough for people to know what it is they're supposed to be doing. And I can't tell you how many uh, hours I've spent working through that, but it's been several hours that we've worked with that because we want employees to know what's expected of them, right? It's tough to tell someone that they're not succeeding if you haven't told them what success looks like. Unmet expectations in a, in a workplace uh, will, will ultimately lead to, 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 to you getting fired, right? I mean, if you work long enough and someone's laid out the expectations and you keep coming short of those expectations, what's going to happen at the end of the day uh, is that organization is going to move on, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a pastor, whether you, um, you know, worked out at the power plant once upon a time. If you don't do your job the way that it's told to you to do, and if you don't do it long enough and you fail to meet expectations, you won't have that job much longer. Unmet expectations is one of the number one causes of divorce. The problem is we often have unsaid expectations within marriage. Um, but, but one of the reasons that we're dissatisfied in marriage from time to time is because what we expect to have, what we expect to, to occur in this idyllic state of marriage doesn't happen perfectly. And our spouse doesn't measure up to the things that we think that they should measure up to, that we expect for them to measure up to, and it creates conflict deep down inside. My wife and I, when we were getting married, we went through a, uh, uh, it was a study, and it's still out there. It's Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. Um, and Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts is a, a book written by Les and Leslie Parrott. If there's not a better like couple, it's Les and Leslie, right? I mean, their names even go together, but the Parrots are um, psychologists and Christian counselors, and they wrote this study. And I remember, I don't remember much about premarital counseling because I was constantly thinking about getting married. Like that was my whole focus is I'm going to get, I was 18, right? Like that's what I wanted, right? I was thinking about getting married. But one of the things I do remember is there was a workbook that we were filling out and we had uh, an expectation, like a, a stated expectation worksheet. And so we would write in our family, who did these kind of normal tasks of life? Like who cooked the meals? Who handled the finances? Who took out the garbage? Who did um, all these like kind of like mundane tasks? And we would write what, what our families did, like what my parents did and what my wife's parents did. And then we would put, without talking to each other, what we expected inside of our marriage that to look like. Right? Who, who's going to take out the garbage? Fun fact, it's not her. Right? But now that I have two like, teenage boys, fun fact, it's not me. <laughs> but you know, like that, for, for, for a long time, that, that sheet right there was very, very important. Because it let us come together and say, who do we expect to do these things? Because if our expectations aren't met, what happens is dissatisfaction grows. And we don't always know why we're unhappy. Right? We don't know why we're unhappy with our spouse. We don't know why we're unhappy with an employee. We don't know why we're unhappy with our, our neighbors or our friends. The reason is, though, because our expectations haven't been met. So we want to be clear when we state our expectations for any meaningful relationship that we get into. Whether it's work or marriage or family, we want to consistently state what our expectations are. And Jesus Christ does that for us in his word. 
If we're entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, if we're going to bear the name of Christ on ourselves, Jesus lays out in the book of Mark, chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, very clearly what the expectations are for those people who will follow after him. These expectations are difficult expectations, and a lot of times I think we've neutered down and dumbed down the gospel and dumbed down Christianity to the point that we try to make it so, so easy. But Jesus has high expectations. If we want to be in a positive, healthy relationship with the God of the universe through his Son, we need to try to meet the expectations that Christ lays out before us. This isn't an expectation to be perfect. That's God's expectation for us all. We all fall short of that, so Jesus came to bear our sins so that we could be justified. It's not a perfection expectation, but it is an expectation of what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. If you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. I hope you've already started flipping there. Mark 8, we're going to start in verse 27. And you remember, Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been going around healing people and fixing problems. And last week, his final miracle was he healed a blind man. And remember, he progressively healed him. He partially healed him, and he could kind of see a little bit, and then he completely healed him where he could see clearly. And I said last week that that was indicative of the disciples' understanding of who Jesus was. At the beginning, they weren't sure who he was. They were kind of totally ignorant. Then they moved into a state of kind of quasi-understanding that Jesus is something special, and then they moved to total understanding of who Jesus was. We see that expressed starting in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples onto the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is the question he says, who do people say that I am? And, And they told him, John the Baptist, and then other people say Elijah, and still others say you are one of the prophets. This is the question that Jesus wants his disciples to have clarified in their mind. It's who am I? What am I? What makes me special, significant? What makes me important here? And so he asked it by saying, what does everybody say about me? And you look at what everyone says about him, and they all say some pretty amazing things. John the Baptist was a, 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 like a hero of that time period, like a cult hero. He had a following of people. He was baptizing people and, and, and like calling out uh, people for living in sin. Like He was a heroic figure. And then Elijah is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, and other prophets as well were indicative. People were basically saying, Jesus is a great prophet sent from God, and they were close, but not right. So Jesus pegs down a little bit farther from asking, what do other people say about me? So he turns his eyes on them, and he asks them in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, and he said, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter understands very clearly that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is a term for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was waited for for all of Israel's history. He was the one who was going to fix all of the problems in modern Israel's life. He was the one who was going to take away all the issues that were struggles, and he was going to be the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords. And Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus is, uh, in other passages, right, and this is as parallel passages, he looks at Peter and he says, you know, that's correct, and on this rock I'll build my church, right? On that testimony that, that I am the Christ, 
the whole church will be built on that testimony. So Peter understands, first of all, who Jesus is. We need to understand who Jesus is. If you have confusion about who Jesus is, I want you to know he's not, he's not just another good dude. He's not another good teacher, another good prophet. You know, Islam likes Jesus Christ. Uh, the, 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 the religion of Islam has great reverence for Jesus Christ, sometimes more reverence than we'll give Jesus inside of our own churches. But they have a high degree of reverence for Jesus Christ, but their reverence stops at he is an amazing prophet, one of the prophets sent from God. Now, Jesus isn't just another prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just a person who could do miracles. No, he is the one who's been long awaited and prophesied for. The entirety of the Old Testament prophesies about this one who's going to come. I've been working with my small group through the book of Genesis. We'll finish someday, I promise. But we've been working through the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis lays out the problem of sin. And the solution to sin is there's going to be one who's going to take care of that sin problem. And the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament tells us more and more about who this person is is going to be. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying you are the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. You are the one our hearts have been waiting for forever. And he's right. And then Jesus began to teach in verse 31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then after three days rise again. And he said this Plainly, this might be the first time Jesus ever told his disciples what his plan was. Right? Who he is has been dis- uh, discovered by his disciples. They've discerned rightly that he is the Christ, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the anointed leader of Israel. He is the one who's going to take care of all this. And then Jesus says, and this is what I'm going to do. Here's who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. And what he's going to do is suffer and die and be rejected. And then after three days, rise again. And he says this plainly to them, not hidden in a parable, not hidden inside of some other teaching, just very directly, this is what I came to do, and this is what is going to happen to me. And so Peter, in verse 32, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, this is not a wise decision, right? To take God and rebuke him over at the side. Now, we all do this from time to time. We pretend like we don't. But when life is unfair, when things don't go our ways, we take God to task sometimes, right? In our prayers, we say, God, do you know what you're doing? Do you understand all these things, right? Our life has a plan and I'm doing good stuff, so why can't you do this, right? And so Peter rebukes Jesus sends him aside and basically says, you don't need to talk like this. This isn't becoming of the Christ, the one who's going to conquer all of the world. It's not becoming of you, Jesus, to do that. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples who were gathered around as Peter was rebuking him, turns back to Peter and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. The second thing beyond who Jesus is, is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to suffer and die. And this plan did not meet Peter's expectations for the Messiah. Jesus in that moment, when he said what I'm going to do, the expectations of Peter were not uh, satisfied. So he goes to Jesus and says, that's not right. That's not what you're going to do. That's not why you came. That's not how things are going to go. You're going to stop talking all of this nonsense, Jesus. 
And Jesus says, no, this is what I've come to do. See, that Jesus, Peter wanted Jesus to take the crown. He wanted to take the crown without any of the suffering. You know, there's another story, though, where Jesus was offered a crown without any suffering. This is why Jesus calls him Satan. Right after the baptism of Jesus Christ, he was taken out to the wilderness. And for 40 days, Jesus fasted and lived out there in the, in, in the wilderness. And he spent those 40 days out there. And at the end of the 40 days, Satan appeared to Jesus and tempted him. And one of the temptations of Jesus was saying, you can have all of the world. You can be the king of the entire world if you'll just bow down and worship me. If you'll stop what you're doing, if you'll give up on the purpose of the cross, if you'll go away from this suffering that you're looking at and just bow your knee to me, the whole world will be given to you. Guys, there's no, there's no crown for Jesus without the cross. Jesus refused to accept the crown without the cross because Jesus loves you. He could have taken the crown, he could have put it on his head and conquered the world, but had he done that, you would still be lost in your sin. Right now, you would be lost in your sin because your sin never would have been satisfied. The punishment for your sin never would have been satisfied. And you would be waiting for your opportunity to be judged by God. Jesus came to suffer. He's the Christ, but he came to suffer. And then at the end of suffering, glory comes, right? There's a rising again that's going to come. But there's a tough time before then. In calling the crowd, verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus turns his attention from his purpose. He's the Christ who's coming to suffer and rise again to your purpose. Peter says, Jesus, you don't meet my expectations. And Jesus says, that's okay, you're wrong. Here's my expectations for you, though. And here's the expectations Jesus had on his disciples and the expectations Jesus has on his church today. It's that we would deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him. Denying ourselves means that we put to death our selfishness. Our life no longer is about our needs. And that's tough to do because we really like our needs. We really like our wants. That's why we like them, right? And Jesus says it's not about you. You have to begin to deny yourself. That means that you're going to have to stop putting your priorities above God's priorities. Deny, deny, deny. Put everything away from you. That distracts you from Jesus Christ. And then take up your cross and follow me. The cross is the implement of execution, the implement of death. Jesus says, you will suffer in this world if you follow me. And in the South, in America, we, we've kind of confused ourselves. Because this is a friendly dynamic. Right? We're in the Bible Belt, and it's still fairly friendly to Christianity. Right? Now you get outside of this little southern world that we live in and you go to north, north part of the United States or the east coast or the west coast, you might run into some areas that aren't as friendly 
to, to Christianity proclaiming the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. But here it's fairly safe. And we fall into like a really easy trap of saying like, it's not that hard. And I'm not really going to suffer because everyone around me believes like I believe. And I'm not telling you to seek suffering, but I'm saying if you don't experience any suffering from being a follower of Jesus Christ, you're probably not a very good follower of Jesus Christ. Right? If you don't experience any awkwardness at family gatherings, right? if you don't experience any awkwardness when you go into your civics uh, environments, if you don't experience any awkwardness when you're speaking with your neighbors about the things that matter, you're probably not doing this very well. Because the cross of Christ is offensive. You know, I, I read a book, or it was really just a pamphlet, and it was about, um, you know, being a welcoming church and how to, how to be welcoming. And one of the things that, that the author of this said is, you know, the cross of Christ is offensive, so everything else shouldn't be in the church. We want everything in the church to be as unoffensive as we can, because when the guy gets up to preach, he's going to tell people that they're sinners and that they're going to hell unless they trust Jesus Christ. And that's a message that is offensive to people, Right? It's an offensive message that we share. And if you share that message, if you share the truth that, that people are sinners, they're going to struggle with it, guys. We're going to suffer. And suffering looks different here than it does across the world, right? Two weeks ago on Easter Sunday uh, in Sri Lanka, I have a friend of mine from high school. She went to church with me who takes mission trips to India and Sri Lanka. That is her primary mission. She's, she's got me on the hook. She wants me to go. She's asked me a half dozen times to take trips with her down there. They, they do uh, schooling and evangelism. But if you, if you watch the news about the bombings that took place in Sri Lanka two weeks ago, those people died for their faith. They didn't die uh, in a random act of violence. They died because they chose to go worship Christ in an environment that wasn't safe. There are people around the world who die for their faith. You are unlikely to be called to die for your faith in Rockdale, Texas, but the truth is you should suffer somehow. You should have some negative experiences because the gospel is a message that will alienate some people. There are people who will take great offense at the gospel. I know people in this town, good people, who take offense at the gospel message when you share it with them. And it comes out this way, and I'll, I'll share just briefly. It comes out kind of like this when you, you're talking about things of faith, and they're talking about good community work because they're good people, want to do good things in the community. And you bring up the fact that like that doesn't dovetail perfectly into the mission of the church, which is to seek and save lost people. They get angry because their good work doesn't meet into what the church's primary and only purpose is. They get angry. I've, I've had established people in this community angry at me because I didn't meet their expectations for what good civics was because Christianity was elevated above it. It's a, it's a dangerous world we live in, guys, even here in this small town of Rockdale, Texas. Jesus expects us to deny ourselves. That means we, we give up our needs for his needs. If you're not doing that, you are failing to meet your expectations. If Jesus was to do a job evaluation with you and write down, how are we doing today? And you were to sit down with your supervisor, it would be a negative thing. You're also supposed to understand that, that your life is temporary and we should be willing to give it up for the sake of the gospel. 
That sounds courageous and victorious. David Platt wrote a book called Radical. I encourage you to read it. David Platt was, the, was just most recently the president of the International Mission Board, our, our, our mission agency. He wrote a book called Radical. The sad thing about the book called Radical is that the title of the book had to be Radical because basically all he told you to do was live a life that would honor Jesus Christ. But here in America, that's a radical concept to live a life that honors Jesus Christ in all things. You need to recognize that this life is temporary. You can't keep this life. This life comes to an end, so you need to maximize it with things that matter. As, as Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Right? There's a lot of people who live everything for this world and don't live anything for the world to come. There's more to life than this. And also, at the end of it, Jesus gives a really kind of dire warning. He says, look, if you were ashamed of me here in this wicked generation with sinful people, and you live ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when I come back. That should scare you, church. It should scare you that if, if you're ashamed of Jesus Christ, that he'll be ashamed of you when you come back. What does it mean to be ashamed of Jesus Christ? It means to be scared to speak truth whenever there's an opportunity to speak truth. Uh, it generally means not being proud of who Jesus was. Right? There's unique things about who Jesus was, and when people try to take away the uniqueness of who Jesus is and make him into something else, and we just kind of smile and nod because we don't want to get into that conversation because it's an ugly conversation to get into, to tell someone they're wrong. Right? That's a bad... And no one like... like by the way, just whenever I say and tell someone they're wrong, some of you are like, you can't tell people they're wrong. How do you know they're wrong? I don't know. I trust God's word to be true. I mean, I trust it. There's right, there's wrong. But to tell people that they're wrong, that, that's, that, that's challenging and it's tough. But guys, a lot of us, we, instead of having awkward conversations, we, we just shut up and just, just don't want to talk about it. There's a warning against that, and that's probably people who aren't members of the church. They're people in the church, around the church, part of what looks like the church, but not actually in Christ's church. But we should be, like, that's a warning to those of us who play church. That there's an expectation that you would take pride in being affiliated with the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and you would be about His business. And if that's not what you're about, there's a couple things that it could be. One, it could be that you've never, ever experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And if that's true of you, it doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized, it doesn't matter how many times you prayed, it doesn't matter how many times you walked down an aisle, it doesn't matter how many Sunday school classes you've taught or attended. If you've never come to grips with the fact that the only reason that your sin can ever be uh, like taken away is through the blood of Jesus Christ, Today's a day to understand that. And if you'll understand that, your perspective of who Jesus is will change greatly. I say this sometimes. I don't hold grudges. Um, you can do me wrong, and I will let it go really, really quickly. And the reason for that is this, is because I know who I am. And the fact that you do something to me, like I, I've done that same sort of thing to other people. And I've done that same sort of thing to Jesus Christ and defiled his name and done wrong by him a hundred times, yet he forgave me. And so I'm really easy to forgive. I'll get mad at you, but I'll let it go really quickly because I've been forgiven much. So if you've been forgiven much, then you need to forgive freely. It's one of the marks of being a follower 
of Jesus Christ. So, so if you've never experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, today's the day to do that. The other thing is this. Some of us, we, we truly are converted. We truly have experienced what it means to, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection through faith. We've come to that point of understanding. We, we, we've been fully converted, but our lives have somehow grown cold to the, the impact of the gospel. And that happens because of years of neglect, typically. We neglect our spiritual life in honor of pleasing our, our physical bodies. Today's the day to stop that. To put your physical needs aside, your emotional needs aside, and to focus on what God has for you to do today. God has expectations for his church. The expectations are high expectations. Deny yourself. Live a selfless life willing to die for his sake and his name. Are you there today? If you're not, today's a good day to get that right. We're in a moment. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's it's an opportunity for us to share in the sufferings of Christ, to share in the brokenness of his body, to share in the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we do that, we, we do it with the knowledge that we are his people. And this meal that we have, and we do it once every other month. Like, we don't do it every Sunday like some churches, but we do it once every other month. And we do it to remind ourselves, because we're so easy to forget, that this meal right here is, it is like who we are. Like, we are the children of the God who sent his son to die for us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take Lord's Supper together.